Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Julian Randall. I'm a living queer Black poet from Chicago. Uh, and that essay collection is like kind of what I'm in the middle of the deadline for at this exact moment. And it has been uh, in many ways, one of the best and most challenging books I think I've ever written. Uh, but it has also been a uh, gut-wrenching process of excavating honesty. So it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been an experience. <laughs> so. I'm Deisha Filyaw, and I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, a collection of nine stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church. My name is Jerry Craft. I'm the author and the illustrator of the graphic novels New Kid and Class Act. My name is Ann Winter, and I am an author of children's books. I live in Austin, Texas. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you, Gary, so much for having me on. This is a huge pleasure. My name is Andre Fenton. I'm a young adult author and poet, spoken word artist from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, I am Andrea Wang. I write books for kids and most recently uh, my picture book, Watercress, and my debut middle grade novel, The Many It's personal. Always excited for my guests, I'm extremely excited for my guests today. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Julian Randall. I'm a living queer Black poet from Chicago. Uh, yeah, so this year is uh, the release of the second book I've ever written. Uh, it's a middle grade novel, the first part of a duet called, uh, this one's called Pilar Ramirez and the Escape from Zafa. Uh, it's my first novel. I have no like novel training, so I'm I'm really excited that people have been uh, showing so much love to the book and that nobody's asked for their money back. Um, but yeah, so it's a, a middle grade fantasy novel. It follows a girl named Pilar Ramirez. Uh, she's a Black Dominicana 12-year-old uh, filmmaker, and she's been working on a documentary about her cousin, Tasha, who disappeared during the Trujillo uh, 50 years ago. And so, you know, she's been trying to track down information about this, but she hasn't been having a whole lot of luck when suddenly her uh, sister Lorena says, hey, there's this professor at the University of Chicago who's doing the exact same kind of research. And Pilar's like, oh my gosh. So she hops on the L, she goes to the office. And as is often the case, when you know, you're trying to pull up to a dude's office hours, uh, my man's is nowhere to be found. All that's in there is a bunch of folders and papers, but among those folders and papers, a file with her cousin's exact name and date of disappearance on it, which she opens up to find only a blank sheet of paper, which would have broken her heart if not for plot twist number one. She touches the sheet of paper, finds herself whisked to the other side into the magical land of Zafa, which is a island of Dominican mythos and magic, which has been dominated for hundreds of years by El Cuco, the Dominican boogeyman, porque, plot twist number two, my man's El Cuco and Trujillo, best of friends, partners, in cahoots, I tell you. And so as a result of that, we get to plot twist number three. El Cuco's the one who's had Natasha this entire time. So now, Pilar has to find a way to find her power, find her history, and find her way back home if she's ever going to have a chance to save Natasha. 
the scenes and on that uh, stages. I have been working on Pilar's sequel, which is the close of the duet, uh, which is called Pilar Ramirez and the Curse of San Simon, and also on an essay collection, uh, both of which are going to come out next year, the essay collection being called The Dead Don't Need Reminding. Uh, and that essay collection is like kind of what I'm in the middle of the deadline for at this exact moment. And it has been, uh, in many ways, one of the best and most challenging books I think I've ever written. Uh, but it has also been a uh, gut-wrenching process of excavating honesty. So it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's been an experience. <laughs> so it's, it's, been wow. a couple, it's been a it's been a wild wow. process, though. <laughs> wow. And I, I just want to, again, as someone, I don't want to say new writer, but new writer in regards to, like, publishing, uh, I appreciate you so much. And also as an educator, like, um, and for you to mention, like, I know, I know, I know you specifically as, like, a writer um, outside of, like, the more traditional sense of, like, writing novels but like for you I didn't I didn't know that it was your very first like middle grade or like novel in regards to like publishing world um and then you mentioned there's no training so like I, I do want to dive into that a little bit just because I'm curious of what that process was like for you um some of the I guess struggles in a sense um what was the I guess the the biggest reward beyond the, the fact that you finished it I know that's as a new author that's obviously something that's obviously something you you, you cherish just finishing that first one but like what were some of the challenges to, to writing a novel with no training oh okay cool um okay so the way that I typically try to explain the first part is that I am traditionally like a, trained as like a poet uh I like had a background in slam and then after that I went and got my MFA at the University of Mississippi um, and so I think that through the process of that and also having a chance to like work with Vivi Francis at Kalu, over time, my lens of poetry became that it was kind of a, like a, a system of uh, documentary filmmaking, right? It's about like specifically, I use the metaphor of like a nature documentary. Like you're finding the most interesting angle that you can place the lens at, and waiting for something interesting to pass through it, and then you follow that interesting thing. You follow that surprise, right? And so the thing is that like writing a novel, by contrast, feels a bit more like what I imagine it's like to make a stop motion movie because you have to go in and you have to move the characters around. Like you have to. It takes so much longer <laughs> to make anything happened in fiction because you have to move them all the way whereas like you know poetry wise I can be going along and going along and going along and then I mention uh something about uh a Netflix trailer of Obama and suddenly I'm like oh okay word I remember when I went through this like brief period where I was like you know what entire people mispronouncing my name I'm gonna have them just call me David we're gonna see what happens that lasts like two days before I was like okay actually I don't know when people are talking to me we're going back to we're going back <laughs> we're going back sidle them up and how that used to be the way that Obama would think about himself as like Barry right so at the fundamental level it was about like embracing a writing uh process that was going to be more structured because it was Pilar was the first novel I ever finished it was not the first novel I ever attempted first novel I ever attempted is like for it's been on the shelf for like a bajillion years because like my vision for it was just like way outsized to my skill set so I just kind of go over there and like kick the tires every couple months or so but now it's become a process of like I think that I believe in these characters but not in the central like thesis question of that novel 
by contrast, Pilar, like that was the one where I'd like, I'd written out like a synopsis. And so uh, Marlon James has this thing that he says about how he like, he plots exhaustively and then promptly ignores all of it. So I plotted exhaustively and then I ignored enough of it because by that point, Pilar had kind of become like a real person. Um, and I could hear her like saying things that were not also me they came from somewhere else and so that's kind of uh, I use the analogy of it was kind of like the first time that my nephew who is eight now um, and just like the light of my life uh, I remember very distinctly like the first time he tried to tell me a joke and it was like a little bit clumsy because he didn't know how to do timing or whatnot and there was like a million events and the moral of the story is that he saw a grape but uh, it was a fascinating insight into what would he uh, put the camera on, so to speak, right? What would he think is funny? What are the ways that he sees things that I can see are very similar to the way that my sister sees things, but also very uniquely him? I think that that's kind of the same process that you go through with your characters as you start to figure out what is important to them and what matters to them. And in that way, it's kind of like the process of like speaking to and tending to a poem. But uh, overall, it is different insofar as like a poem I can knock out in one in one go. In fact, normally I have to. There are very, it's very rare for me to like write, like if I'm writing like a sequence of sonnets or like uh, a Markov sonnet to use an example, like the one that I have in Poetry Magazine, I also realize this is like a really sprawling answer to your first question. So I can cut this out. I can, I can wrap this up if you need me to. You're good. You're good. I love that. Word. Uh, so yeah, so use an example of that, right? Like that Markov sonnet, like that whole long thing. <laughs> Uh, that's in there and was invented by my like wow. dear friend George Abraham um, that whole long thing that was in there that's all one that's all one go like it took four hours I had to reschedule a movie I missed that $22 every day but um, <laughs> that was what it that was what the, the what the work required right and that was what I knew it's like I get this all done one shot otherwise I'm out of the moment I'm out of the mode novels don't work like that (laughs) novels don't work like that at all unless you want to like break your brain and mine is already like pretty broken (laughs) so let's not tempt fate um but yeah you can't you, you can't get the novel done in a day so I think that like that's also a way in which I mean like it's the difference between like documentary filmmaking like I could set up this like I could set up this angle and get my shot that day and if I don't get my shot that day then I can come back to that same spot and maybe tomorrow the like red-tailed salamander or whatever is going to come out of its hole we're going to see something incredible we're going to get we're going to catch like the rare honey badger of a poem right but like stop motion wise you have to come in there every day (laughs) you have to come in there every day or at least find some way to like think about it every day otherwise they are going to still be in the exact same place that you left them wow what a process like the first thing i'm thinking about is how you said you did the plotting until you were just exhausted and the characters became real so it just makes sense to me because like over time when you're writing a novel or trying to write a novel like you need to like you need to be in that story like that story needs to feel real to you like I'm assuming you need to get the best out of the story. Um, so I think that's a, a great lesson for everyone, not just like writers who are publishing, but even just like kids who are in the classroom, like to develop a story that's meaningful. Like that's the type of work that it takes. Like it's not just the finished product. It's also like that phase of just like ideating, trying to understand your ideas and figuring out like your plot and your characters. Like it seems like you sat in that world for like a long time before you felt comfortable enough to be like, okay, now I'm ready to really dive into this, which is really cool to hear. 
um, is I think we don't talk enough about the process and the, the plotting and the, the ideas phase. It's a lot about like the publishing and how do you do that and how do you get there the next step. So I just appreciate that, man. Um, and now you have these, these, these beautiful, beautiful books that are that are coming to the world and are already into the world. So I appreciate you for all of that work that you put in and they're still doing right now. So thank you. Thank you, dog. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so, all about process. I love talking process. What, what like, as a kid, and, and I know you started poetry very early on, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what was, what, what was, what did you want to, was there anything else you wanted to do besides like poetry or writing? If there was something else, what would it have been? Oh yeah, no, there were so many things. Uh, there were so many things. The funny thing is, so like, I think <laughs> I spent much of my young life a little bit on the run from like the idea that I was a writer. <laughs> I think that I wanted to be something else. I wasn't entirely sure what, but I kind of like, I pushed that part away. And I think that a good portion of that was because I was a storyteller. I was like a very natural storyteller. And I don't have, to this day, I have two degrees in English. I had to sit and think and talk about that. I had to sit and think and count them, which is why, you know, I'm not good at math either. Um, but yeah, no, I have two degrees in English, but I have no idea uh, naturally while I'm writing where to put a comma or where to put like these things it's just the way that things are I have to go back through and put those in later <laughs> I for me the important thing is getting through the idea getting through the story because I'm very much immersed in that um, <clears throat> and so I would get the like feedback but like the feedback was mostly about like if you don't like fix your written grammar like nobody's ever going to take what you do seriously <laughs> um, which I understand the conceit of it but it's one of those things where like, even like the small concession, right? That like my first like real writing mentor uh, vision uh, who like back then was the artistic director of a spot called Philly Poetry Movement. He was the, I guess the only slam coach I ever had um, in all of my college years. And just like a friend and mentor to this day, like he was the one who told us from the minute that we met him, assume that I thought the piece was dope. Everything I say to you is to make the piece doper. That never translated to me as a kid. So to me, storytelling and revision were like very deeply associated with this process of being told that I was wrong for the things that I could see and imagine in my head. And so uh, from that, I, I wanted to be a doctor for a while. I wanted to specifically be a pediatrician. Uh, because, uh, I mean, like, there's not really a scientific response behind this. Like, babies love me. <laughs> they always have. And that's great because I also really rock with babies. I think they're incredible. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, where? Well, I'll be like a doctor for babies and that'll be cool. And that was cool until eventually I decided that I, wa I was like, okay, I want to be like the surgeon general. And then I, from that, that developed into I'm going to be the president. <laughs> Uh, and then that went back down from president to lawyer slash potential alderman. And from that 
into, by that point, I was in college and I had started doing slam uh, because of my like dear friend, Noel Quinones, who like lived upstairs from me and like now is like future godfather of my children. But he invited me to this poetry slam and I saw uh, Jamal May uh, was there. He was featuring, and this was like pre-hum Jamal May. So he was reading from like four different chapbooks and I was like, this dude seems really cool. But the thing that actually I took away from that night, no disrespect to Jamal, like that dude's the god, but like, uh, the thing that I took away from that night was I was seeing uh, homies of mine doing poems and like the poems had this uh, grand energy to them. You know, like I could hear them saying poems with some poems that like I could very like deeply relate to. And, you know, it's a moment that like gets like typified into like most slam narratives. But I think that it really, because we, just because we hear it all the time doesn't mean that it's not significant. In that moment, uh, the, singular, the singular process that like I could be, a writer in this way had like shit like shifted fundamentally because I think that that was maybe part of why like as a kid I didn't want to accept that I was a writer because my dad had been a writer and things had not worked out uh for him for a variety of reasons and he had never gotten an opportunity to take uh real advantage of his gift even though I saw his gift literally every night uh when I was a kid because he would tell me stories and he would make them up every time like there was a huge there's like a long like there's like 200 episodes of continuity to a story that he told me once when I was a kid and that was on top of the job that he had going for him he would tell me that and I knew and he thing is he from a very early age that like if something had shifted from last time I was going to notice <laughs> it was like Tolkien's kid that way but like you know as a result of that like and not seeing really like writers who looked like me and stories about kids who looked like me in a school context it seemed that all of the writers were uh all the spots were taken so I mean like it's kind of like if you end up being like the best horse and buggy uh driver in the world but it's 2022 like yes you have a gift but like is your gift like actually amenable to the world into which you were born I think about the same thing for like there how many people uh would have been great directors of like films but they were born before film was made and so I think that like that's it's it's a little bit galaxy brain because that was the things that I was thinking about as a kid but like that I think that was part of what my reticence to it was for the whole breadth of that time period with like very few breaks um but then when I was in that open mic I was like oh okay like I could do that yeah I could do that and wow. I came to my next meet, first meeting the next day and that was it been here ever wow. since <laughs> that's crazy having that obviously sounds like he was such an influence on where you are today um, oh, it was a wild process. thing. Yeah. Like, so many things had to line up for that shit. So many things had to line up for that shit. Because I was away most I was away most weekends. I was away most weekends because I was doing mock trial because I was trying to go to law school. <laughs> I was away most weekends to do mock trials. So I had to be there on that particular Friday. I had to not have any work that I needed. I had to not have any work that I needed to do. And I needed to all not already have started my episode of Breaking Bad. Because I can promise you, if I was in the middle of season four of Breaking Bad and 18 years old, and somebody asked me, do you want to come to an open mic to go see some people read some poems? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> but all of those things lined up and it changed the course of my life. That's, that is wild. It, it literally could have changed everything. Like, yeah. your life could have been changed. With, like, one left turn, one right turn, your life could have been changed completely in regards to, like, what you're doing right now, which is wild. Really wild. Well, I want to hear more about your dad and his 
influence on you like for someone to for you to be able to watch it kind of go through that process of like just like storytelling but also essentially seems like not really getting to where he wanted to i think you mentioned um i feel like for you to see that but then to still like push through or power through or whatever that is like that's amazing because oftentimes people generally tend to see things not happen for people that are close to them so they won't try or people in the community they see that they tried it and they won't try it because it didn't work out for them what was that process like for you growing up you know i think i in some level it was both right because i think that like uh <laughs> i watch uh I, I don't remember what team that bull plays for now. But you remember like when Austin Rivers was coming out for the NBA draft and like you couldn't pay people not to say the word coach's son like oh. within like like every other every other sentence coach's son coach's son coach's son coach's son coach's son and like ultimately you know dude got to the nba it's just okay. <laughs> like he's just fine. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Like I think for me in thinking about that I think that like growing up as like the son of a writer kind of did end up and like a master storyteller <laughs> like a master storyteller uh, in many ways was kind of like a coach's son environment because every story and everything to him is a teaching moment <laughs> like we would uh you remember the Tom Joyner morning show mm-hmm. yeah so like <laughs> you know the the the, the fly jack the fly jack uh so we would listen to that every day on the way to school and they had that thing um it's your world. It was like a, a fake soap opera for everybody who's not familiar with it. But like, it was like a fake soap opera where like all the black people were rich, aside from Red Bone. Um, but it went for like four minutes. It was like four. It was like four to. It was like ten minutes top episode every day. And one day it just kind of like caught my ear, and I started paying attention to it. And so he would let it play out, and then he would turn off the radio entirely as soon as the episode was over, and ask me to like kind of like break it down, like what, how many scenes were there, how how many scenes were there, what happened, why. Uh, how did, how did they like create this environment, right? And so like in many ways, like to hear a story from my dad and that's just how he is. Like he's just big on teaching moments. Um, and so for like in a lot of ways to hear a story from him was to like be like breaking down game film <laughs> from a very young age to the um, point that like every sentence that like comes out of my mouth is like, it's all very, like most of the time it's very strategic. Unless I'm just like talking, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, like, I'm just vibing. Like sometimes I'm just vibing, but overall everything linguistically was very strategic and also like you know he like had placed me in this very white very affluent school (laughs) and so code switching was a thing that I picked up naturally but it was also a thing that was like a learned and acquired skill and so as a result of that you start to think about like you know it's the double consciousness narrative right of like you're at some level every sentence that I am telling these people about myself is me constructing a story about who they want me to be (laughs) and like trying to build a bridge from that to who I am and trying to see if we can have some kind of exchange on this. Sometimes those bridges failed, sometimes they didn't. But all of that trickles down from his decisions and how he emphasized the power of like story making, both in like my life and also at a creative level. Um, But I think that it's also the fact that like once 
I was like, once it became clear, this is where I was like really trucking towards in undergrad. I think that was when I, um, I switched my major, rather I established my major as English and Black Studies with a minor in education. Um, and so me and my dad have like, this back and forth about uh, how I ex- intended to sustain myself as a writer but it wasn't um, the typical kind of conversation that like parents have between like parent and child when like w- the child in that relationship wants to like pursue an artistic means and they're like, this isn't going to happen. Rather, I wanted to take it more like, I just want to utilize this platform to emote and to feel things and process things. And he said, look, that's not how people make livings. <laughs> like if you want to do this, like he's like trying to set me up with like, I was in workshop with this guy. Do you want me to reach out to him? Hey, there's this fellowship program. Hey, there's this workshop. Hey, there's this, 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 this. And so that's the thing is that like, if anything, I had this this unflagging support to the point that it was sometimes overwhelming. Uh, That he was like, this is, if you want this to be your job, then you have to treat it like a job. And so I started trying to uh, like place some more of that on myself of like, what have I done writing wise to get better today? What have I done to advance what future Julian needs for tomorrow? Uh, And that just became like this like constant engine that was, that eventually was what inspired me. When I was, uh, my freshman year, I didn't make the, I didn't make the slam team, Uh, which like, to be fair, I should not have made it. It's a very good thing that I didn't make it. Uh, I had to try out via video because I was away that weekend. It was just not going to, it was not going to work out. It was not going to work out. Decisions needed to be made. But uh, heading into sophomore year, I decided that like, this is the thing that I wanted to do. Like I, wa- I was going to make this team because I knew that everyone who had gone to that team, the next poems that they had written were bonkers. And I was like, that's where you, that's where I go to like start building a bridge towards the poet that I hear myself sounding like, but I'm just not there yet. And so I would start, I start, I would do uh, open mics around the, around the campus. I hosted, I did all those, I did all those things to kind of like build up that skill set. But past a certain point, you know, I'm going to a college with like 1600 people in it. Like there's just not... (laughs) Uh, there's not a lot of non-familiarity with me, especially considering like there aren't that many Black people on campus. I mean, they constantly mistook me for Noel and Noel for me. But other than that, they generally knew that it was poet dude number one or poet dude number two. Uh, so people generally felt like good about me in that space. They wanted me to do well. They wanted me to have a good time. And they understood that, that like we were all part of the same community. But that didn't feel like past a certain point it was advancing my artistic growth I'm like oh you're just excited that I'm doing a poem not that the poem is good or I can't gauge if you're excited about one or the other so I started going out to all these open mics out in Philly uh to go and like spit in front of like neutral crowds to see like what about this is actually hitting and what about this only works in this community and vision peeped that because he would be around at all of these different things so when I started coming around or when I came around for the uh for the competition sl- for the comp- for the team slam rather like he knew <laughs> like oh like it's not only that bull like bull killing him it's like bull been putting in the work to build connections out to the actual out to the community like but all of that came from that like job mentality of like if you want it you gotta if you want the ball you gotta go up and get it that's crazy and you're gonna come I'm, just, to you. I'm, just, I'm just trying to think about just that process of like being a kid essentially and having someone who 
who's influencing and like guiding you on this journey so much. Um, for one, like super, obviously you're super grateful for that. Like just to be able to have the opportunity to have someone in your life who's able to influence you in a way that's going to impact the rest of your life in general. Like, I just think that's amazing. Um, it makes me, I have so many questions. I got to write stuff down as you were talking. Um, I wonder, because you don't speak a lot about, um, so I'm wondering about her, obviously. Um, then I'm wondering a lot about just like, the idea of growing up, and you, you've probably talked about this a hundred times, but like the idea of growing up in spaces where it's like your name's not like pronounced properly, being um, <laughs> if people are basically thinking you're someone else, you're not um, code switching, like all these things are coming up. And I wonder what those spaces like felt like during those times. I have an answer that can flow together. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. All right, word. So, uh, my mom is also a huge influence of mine. Definitely a huge influence of mine. I think that because my dad is like the writer uh, in the family until I was there, he often ends up taking like the foreground of it. But Pilar exists because of my mother. Pilar exists in tribute to my mother, exists in tribute to her and her sisters. Um, insofar as like, really like Pilar, we started August of 2019 um, and then wrapped it up June of 2020. But if we really think about it, the story of that book begins when I'm eight years old and I stumble in and I see my mother crying. And it's the first time I'd ever seen her cry. shattering it was earth shattering it was an earth shattering moment and so i asked her what she was crying about because she was crying over a book and that was doubly like i was like what what is going on here uh so i asked my mom like, like what are you crying what, what's going on and she was just like oh it's a book and i was like what's the book about she said it's uh it's called in the time of the butterflies by julia alvarez uh and this is the story of the sisters who fought back against the man who kicked your abuelo off the island and i was like wait what <laughs> Because up until that point, I knew that my mom is Dominican. My dad is a black dude from St. Louis. Uh, and so my mom's, I, I just, I knew that like I came from like two different cultures insofar as like my mom is a like Washington Heights Dominicana. My dad is a black dude from St. Louis, uh, but the two of them met in Manhattan and whatnot. And so she tells me that like when my abuelo was a young man, when he was in, when it was the 1950s in DR, so it's the last decade of Trujillo's reign. He made a joke uh, among his friends. And it was just a joke. The joke was about Trujillo. And somehow that joke got back to the secret police of Trujillo. And so they start coming around the neighborhood looking for him and asking like, you know, cause he like, has he been going to any meetings recently? Has he been talking to anybody new? Da, 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 da. It's becoming clearer and clearer by the hour that the secret police is coming to snatch up my abuelo. So he and my abuela have after like, they have known only one language, one people, mostly one town their entire lives. Uh, have to finesse their way onto my abuela getting on a plane, catching a green card, and getting my abuelo out 
uh, so they can start a new life here in America because the real, like when people, <laughs> when he did, when it, his policemen decided they don't like somebody, he decided he don't like somebody, they just disappeared. And so I had to wonder about like, it's like this very narrow stretch of possibility where he gets out of that situation because there's so many people who didn't, right? What happens if he doesn't? What if instead of that, our family name is Ramirez? What if, uh, as was actually the plan, I was born my mother's daughter and my name was Pilar? <laughs> what if we were still from the same block, but there was a magical, there was a portal to a magical world because uh, DR for so long was this imagined island, this place of profound mystery and love and beauty and pain and just magic, right? And I knew that when my mom said things, it sounded like magic. When she spoke Spanish to her sister, somehow she could say something in Chicago and her sister felt better in New York. That's magic. That's magic to me. But when the stories that I was coming up around, you know, I grew up in like the like Harry Potter, Artemis Fowl era, which like all do love and respect to like Artemis Fowl and whatnot. But it's also, you know, a situation where like, okay, is magic just for white kids then? <laughs> if that's the only stories that we're telling, if those are the only songs we're singing, is magic just for white kids? Cause I would ask about like, oh, are there any Jewish wizards? Are there any black wizards? Like, cause they, they look, they can say all they want. Like, like, <laughs> like, didn't nobody know I did not know Dean Thomas was black until they saw until he came around on some guess who's coming to dinner shit with Jenny Weasley I didn't know <laughs> I had no idea that's who we were supposed to be dealing with um but yeah nah yeah. Friends, like off of that like my mom was a tremendous influence storytelling wise um insofar as like she gave me one of the central mysteries of my life <laughs> to try and wow. like make sense of uh so there's that uh that's abuelo abuela like my abuelo is with the ancestors now um but I, I want the next book to be dedicated to him uh just as like the close of the duet it feels very apt um i forget if there were other elements i forget i forget other elements no, i think that was, that was the, the main part i think the other part was think, i was thinking a lot about how you were just the spaces that you've been in and how you had to oh yeah to, yeah, yeah. to walk in those spaces differently and what that felt like when you were that's a great question I honestly I, I this may just be because I was thinking about a very random lesson plan that I did in high school or not in high school in college in college and I taught it to young kids like, I swear this is going I'm sorry I'm going over with this uh, but the college that I went to is right outside of Chester Pennsylvania um, and so they would have us come. And so for this early education class, we would come in and they want us to teach a science lesson to the kids. And I was like, I don't know any science. <laughs> like I can, I, I can show them some magnets and they were like, they already have magnets. And I was like, okay, well that, that kind of limits my options here. And so in a, a fit of like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Um, I was like, look, maybe I'll just like print out some some pictures of animals in like different like ecosystems and whatnot, and we'll play a rousing game of who wins in this situation. But then that's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> I literally made them like little playing cards where it was like fox, wolf. Are these in the same biome? If not, toss them aside. 
pick another pick another card and then whoever like wins like the next kid like taps in and picks another card from the top of the deck and that's how they learn how food chains work it worked out way better than it had any right to i figured it out like perhaps three hours before the lesson was due um like maybe maybe but i say all that to say that like you know as like a young kid in like an environment where like you are very are made very keenly aware that like you know like we do not have resources or the flexibility that these people have we just don't there's no way to like buy a building to make it go away we don't have that kind of shit uh i mean like, it, was, it was wild man like we were going like we were going to school i was briefly in school with like michael jordan's kid like we were in the same class like it was me and jazzy jordan and that was the only two black people in that class <laughs> Thank you.